when you set up your business, in theory, you can get to a point where it's running without you. To me, that's a true business. Otherwise, you, you have a, a bit of a glorified job. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology and tries to insert a cat into every recording. Episode number 71. Would you believe it? And I believe this episode you go solo, Chris. So why don't you give our audience a sneak peek into what's discussed in this episode? Yeah, in this episode, Big 71, hey Sam. Uh, We're talking to Patrice Archer and uh, you're right, this one is just me as you couldn't make it. Um, I can't remember why. You? Traveling. Uh, It was a while back anyway. Uh, Patrice talks to me about how he built a successful career in finance only to quit when his first child was born. Uh, This spurred a left turn into running his own businesses and finding his way into technology. Ten years later, he's built and sold a number of companies and is now helping businesses to get their start, working with non-technical founders to build successful tech businesses through Appy Ventures. Well, that sounds awfully exciting. I look forward to listening to this one or watching it if I happen upon YouTube. Which reminds me, if you enjoy the content, give it a like or wherever you're watching or listening, commit yourself to our content on your platform of choice with a subscribe or a follow. And we still need a coffee, so head on over to buymeacoffee.com slash that tech show. And with that, here is Patrice Archer. Hi, my name is Patrice Archer, and I help founders and entrepreneurs build technology-enabled businesses. Well, thanks, Patrice, for joining us. So um, why don't we get into a little bit of that then? So uh, what, what got you to the point of helping entrepreneurs to start building their tech businesses? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I guess maybe as a sort of small background, my first career has nothing to do with, with technology. So I didn't come from this as a tech insider. I came from this very much as a tech outsider. I, I spent 10 years in investment banking and private equity. So effectively helping uh, big businesses buy other businesses, scale them up, sell them, make lots of money, which was a lovely career for a while until the financial crisis of 07 or 08. And then I started playing around with little businesses on the side. So everything from a little fashion brand, which we launched, a peer-to-peer lending platform, which we worked on, uh, and other little projects like Kickstarter projects, lots of experimenting, learning by doing, because I, I guess... If I can say that, in in finance, I felt like a bit like a caged bird. I I wanted to do something else. I just didn't know what. And then I guess the way I got started into that is 10 years ago, almost to the day our our oldest son was born. And it was one of those decision points in life where you think, what do I want to do in life? Do I want to never see this kid grow up and work in an office day to day and start at seven, finish at eight? Or do I want to be at home and design a, a business and a life so I can be there and see him grow up and I went for the latter, thankfully. And really what I've been doing for the last 10 years is build technology businesses either for myself initially, and then increasingly people ask me, oh, I've got an idea. Can you help me with my idea, please? That's interesting. So that's quite a decision point, I suppose, to to take that at the birth of your first child and go, (laughs) I'm going to drop the career that I've built for the last 10 years and do something entirely different. Absolutely. And new child, uh, we, we got married, I don't know, less, less than a year ago. So it wasn't quite the deal I think my wife signed up for, but I'm very lucky that she was highly supportive. I think she could see that I was unhappy uh, in what I was doing. And thankfully, she had the belief that I could make it work. Uh, so yeah, big change. Yeah. Get rid of a nice paycheck and just make it try and make it work. Yeah, well, I mean, I want, I want to go back a little bit because it's a world I'm curious about. 
uh, I don't know a huge amount about it, the investment banking world. I mean, what what led you into the investment banking world? I mean, what did you study at uni to get you there? Um, I studied something called international management. So international management at Bath University is, is a lovely degree. It's it's broad. So if you imagine a T, it's a wide T. It's not a deep T. So you learn a little bit about a lot of different things. And ultimately, you're not really qualified for, for much, but it gives you a certain <laughs> way of, of, of thinking. And that was 2003, I graduated. And to be honest, Chris, I applied for a bunch of stuff, everything from advertising, PR, uh, marketing, even technology. And the first job I got was, was very luckily, uh, Barclays Capital, doing this, this kind of private equity financing, just no, nothing else but luck. So it wasn't design. It was just luck. I fell into that. So I was going to ask you whether you knew from that course whether you were going to go into investment banking, but it sounds like the you know there wasn't much of a plan there. <laughs> no, I, I, I can't say I'm a huge planner in that sort of like you know let's map out the next ten years and and figure out exactly how we get from A to B, which would be lovely. And I think it's a lot easier to go back and go, oh, well, obviously I got to here by doing this and this and that. But projecting forward is a lot harder to to do and plan. But I'm, I'm glad I did, though ultimately it wasn't what I wanted to do, but I, I wouldn't have known that. And I learned a heck of a lot by going through, I mean, frankly, going through the mill, you know, doing 100-hour weeks that you, you you may have heard about in the past of in finance where you know, people are working all hours. I did all those things, um, also the, the networking events, the, the, all this of living in London in, in the 2000s as, as a 20-something-year-old, did all that, and frankly, I had a great time. It was fantastic. <laughs> it's good fun. Were you, were you from London? Where were you from originally? No, I'm actually from France originally, um, but I left France when I was 12 and moved to Belfast. So I've, I've got a weird accent. I usually get told, are you South African or, or Dutch or something like that? <laughs> so no, I wasn't a Londoner, um, but yeah, really, really enjoyed living in London. It's great fun. So you moved to London for university then, is that? So I went to Bath Uni and then after university... Oh, oh sorry, you said Bath. Yeah, yes. no, no, that's right. Uh, so Bath Uni, I had a I had a actually a gap year in France during university. So um, I was working in Paris, and then after that, I thought it'd be, it'd be great to go to London. Certainly in two thousand and three, that was the place to be. Finance in London, great place to be. I I can't say that it's the same now. I believe it's changed an awful lot, and you know, twenty something year olds' career aspirations will be quite different. I think it'd be maybe more towards what I do now, you know, startups, building technology, that, that's probably where people are most excited about nowadays. You, you'd come from Bath via various different other places to get to London. You hadn't had a plan to be an investment banker. What was the first day like as an investment banker? <laughs> it was, so it was part of, part of a graduate scheme. So there was, I think, a dozen of us. I'd literally flown over from Thailand the night before because after uni, I spent four months traveling around the world. So I arrived with a backpack and a very cheap, cheaply made uh, suit from Thailand, uh, which probably <laughs> fell apart within a month, actually, if I'm honest. And yeah, we sort of put together with, with a, a dozen other young people and had a bit of a crash course on what finance is about, I'm going to say, because it's interesting. There's a big difference in my mind between university, which is theoretical, to what you actually learn in, in a job. And I think that's probably true in, in most jobs. Like what you've learned could be some useful transferable skills, but once you get in situ with a new business, new job, new career, new, new direction, in many ways you go learn from scratch. So the, the ability to learn uh, and having the right attitude, and maybe good aptitude, but right attitude, 
it's probably the thing they should be teaching at uni in my mind, you know, be open, say yes to things, try things, learn. That's a good thing to do. Mm. And, and so how does that sort of progress then from that, that graduate scheme, that figuring out what you're going to do, how you're going to do it? How long did it take you to settle into the job and to know what you were doing? Um, I'd say, that's, that's an interesting question. I'd say probably six, six to nine months. Um, what was interesting is I was, what, 22 at the time? And I was sitting in front sometimes of, you know, 40, 50-year-old finance directors who wanted a loan or were going to be bought out by this other firm. And I was representing the bank. I was very lucky to be put forward very, very early. And I was representing the bank, discussing with them, you know, interest rate terms, you know, structuring, you know, what, what the right thing to do was as the experts, I'm going to say in virtual commas, expert, also blagging it. But yeah, it took about six, nine months to, to feel like I remotely knew what I was talking about, which is crazy. And one of the courses I got put on, which is something I'd highly recommend actually for young people, actually for anyone, is, is something called NLP. Have you heard of NLP? Uh, linguistic Programming? Absolutely, yeah. Neurolinguistic Programming. Yeah. And, and that course, really what it was is, I guess you could call it the art of communication up to a point. It, that sounds really grand, but it was more about for me, what was important is if you're in a conversation with people and you want to make sure it goes well, that's not something I use on a day-to-day -day or think about, but maybe it's subconscious, you need to try and communicate with them in the right way. And for me, that was invaluable uh, as a young graduate who clearly looked like he was 22, talking to somebody <laughs> much older uh, and trying to have some kind of level of professionalism, if not authority. It was a very useful course in terms of learning how to communicate to get on the same level as people. And, and have that kind of adult-to-adult -adult conversation in a right way. I, I really recommend people look into it, actually, of whatever age, if you want to improve your communication uh, and how you interact with people. There's, there's, there's certainly something in that, I suppose, that I, I had a look at some NLP stuff as well earlier in my career. I, I think, you know, as a young person, you do struggle a little bit to to create a sense of authority actually around yourself when you you know you look so look so baby faced right because <laughs> you don't think you do at the time but looking back at it you really are uh, <laughs> yeah um, absolutely you know beards gray hair and things like that help over time <laughs> uh, from the for the men uh, <laughs> but the um so yeah i mean as you as you're learning how to communicate what is it like when you've got that 100 hour work week as you mentioned you know the uh, there's presumably a lot of is it like billions <laughs> the tv show billions uh, <laughs> it, it is um so you get slightly desensitized to uh to a couple of things one is to to the workload so it starts becoming slightly normal and you know, you'll start at seven thirty eight, and you'll finish at midnight and you'll, you'll do some weekends and you won't even think too much about it because your social life now this is especially back then nowadays i wonder what what it's like because back then it was definitely in the office, five days a week, six days a week. You know, there's no work from home kind of component. Uh, but your social life was the office. Your life was the office. Your life was the business. Not, I'm not saying that's a healthy thing, right? That definitely not. But you get desensitized to that because you get used to it. That's that's kind of what you know, especially if that's what you started in. And then you also get desensitized, funny enough, to to the numbers. I mean, talking about billions. You know, some of the deals we did were in the billions. Were you the person saying we should do this deal? Like, this, this is a good one. We should do that. 
And then you're writing a check for what looks like a telephone number. Uh, not me personally, <laughs> but yeah, the bank is on, on, on my recommendations. Yeah, a slightly crazy world, actually, when you think about it. And maybe that <laughs> explains some of the financial collapse a few years later, which Absolutely. I had nothing to do with. <laughs> not important enough to have too much to do with that. So you weren't marched out the door then when it all came crashing down? No, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't. <laughs> I know a few people who were there. Well, I mean, actually, we talked about it on, on a previous episode of um, someone who was working in the tech side for Lehman Brothers, but they didn't get marched out the door. They watched everybody else get marched out the door because they were keeping the platform running. I just thought that was fascinating as a conversation. But... Yeah, they had to keep core people. Yeah, I had a good friend who was a trader there, and yeah, it was pretty real for them uh, what happened there. And yeah, they kept a core sort of team to help wind down the operation. That is a gigantic operation to wind down. Yeah. Did you end up being a trader? Is that what you you, you uh, progressed to do? Or what was your career progression there? I mean, we'll, we'll move on from this in a second, but you know, just a curious world. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what were the learnings that maybe you've taken into, uh, into later part of your career? Uh, so initially what I was doing was more around structuring debt and equity instruments. So if a property firm was looking to buy a business, what they tend to do is effectively speak to a bank or multiple banks and say, can you lend me some money to buy this company there? And here's why it's a good risk. And then the conversation is around what is the right debt structure for that business. So effectively, like any business taking a loan, it's got to be the right kind of loan that can be affordable in the right way, structured in the right way in terms of number of years over which it's repaid, the monthly cost, all the sort of pretty basic things. But the private equity houses, they've got a plan. They're going to buy it today for $100 million. They want to sell it in three years for $300 million. So a lot of the conversation is, how do we make that happen? Because as the bank, a lot of the conversation was, how do we make sure that this business can afford this debt over time, um, but it's also aggressive enough that you can win the mandate? So a lot of the learnings I had was around how private equity works, how you help scale a business, operationally transform it, so that you buy it for 100 million, three years, you can sell it for 300 million. What does that look like? How interesting is that work? Is it quite data intensive? Do you end up having to spend a lot of time on it? Is it boring in any shape or form? I mean, because it's always portrayed as a very exciting thing, isn't it, when you see it in movies and TVs, all of the... Uh, the trading floor is obviously a very exciting place to be. You know how how does um, how does it actually translate into real life? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think for me, what I found interesting it wasn't specifically you know am I interested in in restaurants? Um, for me, it's more I'm, I'm interested how you can operationally transform a restaurant business, scale it, which is very applicable to lots of different industries. How you can transform things so that it it, it will it will scale and. One of the beautiful things, certainly from my side, was the amount of due diligence reports you got from experts like, say, PwC, that write you 200 pages on the restaurant sector and how, how you, they're going to grow from 50 locations now to 200 locations in, in three years. And that's, I love data. I certainly got to love data by, by doing that job because you can see some really interesting trends and insights that I guess the average punter will just not see or know about or have any inkling that it exists. But when you have that level of data, it's very helpful to make decisions, of course, and to help you win and grow. So it's not quite like you know Wall Street, the movie with Michael Douglas. And once you've been inside it, you realize there's, there's a lot of common sense around how to grow and scale businesses, make sure you've got the right management team in place, that's got a clear strategy, they've got an initial sort of 100-day plan, 
possibly a lot of the things that, that your audience has heard about, this is the kind of thing they do at that level. And it's some of the basic fundamentals uh, that they execute on. They have a plan, they execute it, they have regular reviews, etc. I don't know if you ever looked into EOS. Have you looked into EOS, the Entrepreneur's Operating System? No, I haven't actually. That sounds interesting. What is EOS? EOS, I guess it's a branded way of saying you need to create a system, systematic way of working within an organization, have processes, have the right people in the right place doing the right things, having longer term, shorter term. And effectively, you know, bigger businesses, maybe even private equity, will operate in a way similar to that without maybe that EOS branding. But I mentioned that because... It's quite clear. It's well-organized. There's a book called Traction. That's very useful. I strongly recommend to people who want to spend less time working in the business and work more on the business, like lots of people have heard. But that, that book can help you create systems around that. In private equity, they operate at that level, the bigger scale. But I'd say they're very good at, at having a strategy, a vision, an aggressive plan, but having the fundamentals in place. And that is that operational structure that maybe a book like EOS can help illustrate uh, or traction uh, around EOS. Yeah, that's really interesting. I suppose that's, um, well, actually a lot of the stuff that you've talked about so far within this investment banking world is sounds very management consulting, but with, it's the same sort of practices, really, knowing that there's a plan, putting a plan together, I suppose, in a lot of, uh, in, a lot of in a lot of ways. The 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 difference, I suppose, is the um, you know, it's a very well-paid job i suppose as an investment banker and uh you know i'm i'm, I'm wondering you you've got the as you mentioned earlier the you know you're signing checks the size of telephone numbers so obviously it's it's rewarded for the big transactions that you're making there but um what is it that differentiates it from something that's like management consulting because you've you know you're getting the data from Obviously, people like PwC, management consultants, that sort of thing. Uh, I guess uh, if you look at it from this perspective, they, they've got access to the money. So what they've said, they've created a fund. This is how private equity works. They've created a fund. And they've said, in this fund, we're going to buy this kind of assets. So say we're going to buy restaurants. That, that's where we believe there's an opportunity. Or strategy around restaurants is going to be like this. So say scaling up the, the number of locations or something like that. And they'll say to the investors, we'll, we'll give you 20% return. We'll give you X. But they're talking to big investors. So yeah, you know, it could be all the way up to BlackRock. So we'll say, okay, well, here's a check for a billion. Go and invest it for me. You'll fall into what I'd like to call like a slightly higher risk or higher risk category, but higher return. So they've created a big fund of money behind them. And they're using that fund to go and execute a strategy, which is say buying five, six, 10 different businesses. And within each of the businesses, they're going to look to grow it. And as you say, it's not very different from management consultants because that, that's what they're leveraging, their expertise, their thoughts. They've got their own opinion 100% and very, very smart guys in, in, in the PE world. But what they're doing is they're doing it with large amounts of money behind them to enable them to do that. And that's where some of the big salaries can come from and, and success. So I suppose the difference there is rather than you know being brought in as a management consultant where you're you know getting a day rate or your consultancy is getting a day rate or a, you know, whatever you're getting paid, you're doing a similar job, but actually you're bringing the money to the table. Yeah. So you got the money behind you uh, and you've got investors who go, a lot of cash is saying, I believe in you. Uh, here's some money. Make me more money. Uh, and that's <laughs> what they, I mean, it's, it's that. 
in many ways, there's been a lot of money in that world. I think yeah, quantitative easing, like lots of money in the economy, and let's, let's not go too much into the economy, what's going on right now. But it's basically meant people have been looking for other ways of having yield, of making money. And, you know, uh, an asset class like private equity investments has been very attractive because it can make good return on investment. And that's where investors have been seeking you know, return on investments. So on those return on investments, what percentage of the time do you get the ROI you're expecting? <laughs> Probably 0% of the time because <laughs> it's not an exact science. Uh, some you win, some you lose. All right, then let, let, let's simplify that. So, so what what percentage of the time do you get a an ROI? <laughs> I, I think actually, interestingly, in, in the world priority, certainly over the last twenty years. So, just to put it in context, I did this for ten years, ten years ago, right? So, I left ten years at that world. I still have a number of friends in that world and have an idea what's going on. But it's been very much matching the economy in general. It's been a bit of a boom. Let's be honest. Prices have gone up. Things have gone well. I'm actually personally interested to see what happens in more of a recession phase where things are a bit more challenging because historically, this is a bit of a deep dive in private equity, but it's been since early 2000s, it's been a bit more about financial engineering. So it's been a bit more about cleverly, how can we structure the financing to make a good return on investment as a private equity house and less about how do I operationally transform the business to reduce costs, increase sales, which they're doing as well. But there was a lot of easy wins with funding side. Uh, I think going forward, if you buy a business, the economy is going a bit downhill a little bit, et cetera. You're going to do a lot of work and possibly a, a good time to technology, a lot of work around technology, digital transformation and optimization to achieve some of the returns. Because to me, I see a lot of opportunities um, with some of those bigger businesses that are maybe a bit more traditional to invest in technology. Digital transformation there is a very important word. But digital transformation is quite a, a buzzword as well. I mean, have you seen many failures as a result of attempted digital transformations? Yeah, yeah. I think you, it's got to come from the top. So a lot of the stuff I tend to do with is, you know, early stage founders, no red tape, no nonsense, no huge technology debt. You know, we can move fast. Big organizations will have a lot of tech debt. They will have maybe one or two people excited about it, but no true ambassadors internally to drive it forward. And they might try and deliver something, spend two years and a lot of money, but there isn't maybe that internal culture. There isn't that innovation thinking. There isn't that goodwill around it. So it's dead on arrival. Um, I've seen and been involved in one that we tried to help Two years, they, they just couldn't integrate with the internal system. Uh, I think literally it was two days worth of work. They didn't have the time to do that. And the internal sponsor that was pushing our project was a little bit more junior to the other person who was saying, business as usual says, we got to do this first. And what was a really exciting piece of but digital transformation, but also innovation for them, which would have helped them win a lot of business, just died before it launched. But does that end up being like a failure of digital transformation or does that end up being a failure of the business? Or is it one knocking on to the other? It's possibly one knocking on to the other. There's a lot of digital transformation with oh, chat, as you said, lots of buzzword around this. I, I like plain talking. I like no nonsense. And at the end of the day, you need to have a business that says, hell yeah, I want to do this because. And some of the time, I think what I've seen is people saying, this is a nice idea. It's not what we do normally. It's a nice idea. I don't need to do it. Uh, and it doesn't get pushed through all the way like it needs to. Um, 
It's a tough one, Chris. <laughs> well, let's get back to what um, you know. Other than the imminent birth of your uh, of your eldest, what was the trigger point for you going? I've had enough of this uh, investment banking life, and technology is the answer. Because I know you you mentioned earlier that you were tired of the investment banking life. What was it that led you to go? I'm going to build some technology. So for for me, I think it was back in after the financial crisis, so 2008. I was at a bank that was also a PE house called HBOS that, I don't know if you remember, but effectively got rescued by Lloyds Bank. So effectively the bank failed and it got rescued by another bank. And I was told, you, you, you can't work for six months. You've got to go to work every day, but you know we're going to decide if we keep you on after the merger uh, with Lloyds. And a friend of mine, uh, of mine pointed out a book called the something called the Four Hour Work Week by a chap called Tim Ferriss. I don't know if you've heard of it. Yeah, very familiar with that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's written a, he's written a few others as well, and and um, I've heard an interview with him actually. I think it was on Mark Maron's podcast. And he's quite an extreme gentleman. <laughs> he's quite extreme. He loves experimenting, and it, it's quite broad what, what he does in terms of you know everything from psychedelics to. Uh, to business, to to health, etc. But in business, his book was kind of—is uh, it word seminal, right? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's groundbreaking, I suppose, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of people refer to it. You know, it's uh, yeah. I think seminal is a fair word for it. I think it, it's a. I read it and I thought, oh, actually, I can. Um, I could do something like that. And my friend started a business, which is still going now, doing very well around American expat taxes, which is fascinating. How. Niche it can be, but actually quite interesting it can be as a business. And I started playing around with, with a business because I said I had six months where I was going to be paid and I wasn't allowed to particularly work. So it was a great opportunity. And the second I started thinking, okay, I could do a business. Uh, and the one I did was a random one around a, a polo shirt brand. I mean, very random. But the, the big lesson I had is if you think you can, you, you will, just give it a go. Pick up the phone, send that email. Just try it. Yeah, there's a problem. Okay, how do we solve that problem? Try that. So so what was this first business then? So I had this random idea. Uh, I, I used to play a lot of golf. And if it's a sunny day, you're on the golf course, you finish your round. And let's be honest, you're going to be tanned on the arms and maybe on the face, but you're going to be pretty white elsewhere. And I was on playing golf and I thought, there must be, there must be a material that lets you tan through it. There must be. So I did some research, maybe inspired by the four-hour work week. And there was, there was this, this German uh, mad inventor, scientist person that, that created this material that acted like XPF factor nine, I think it was, depending on the color. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to message him, inspired by this book. Yeah, because why not? And he responded and we had a little chat. We had a phone call. I was like, actually, this guy doesn't, he's got something interesting. It's worth trying. He's not really selling the material. I think there's an opportunity there. Why not? So I flew over to Germany, met him, had a discussion, and thought, okay, this seems to stack up. It, it's worth a go. So I found a factory in Holland that, that could do this of the design and, and make a small run to just trial it. So I wanted to experiment and test it without spending a fortune. And yes, yeah, so I've got that manufactured. Then I learned what e-commerce was because <laughs> I had no <laughs> idea. And started launching it and did some press release and we got in the the, the the BBC and the Times and a few other places. And so I was selling some. It was one of those businesses where, you know, it's pretty niche, let's be honest. And um, it worked up to a point. You could tan through it, but it wasn't quite this of the perfect tan I think people would, would have wanted. So as a business, um, 
you could argue that it failed because you know it didn't succeed and take off. But in some other ways, it did okay, and I sold the brand on to somebody for for peanuts. But it's just a lovely experience to go go for my idea, very random, learn, and then sort of neatly package it up and then move on to try new ventures. I think random probably sums that idea up. I mean, that is insane. <laughs> uh, I, I I agree, and uh, a few of my friends had a good laugh. And uh, but yeah, I, I think. For me, the biggest learning was you can. Uh, and if you have an idea, test it. Why not? You know, there's a whole lot of stuff that you've covered in there, you know, in, in terms of flying out to meet the inventor of the material, setting up the e-commerce website, going to a factory and having them manufactured, and then getting the PR for it. That's, that's quite a lot of stuff to do. You know, what made you think that you could or knew how to do all of that stuff? Uh, I definitely didn't know how to do it. Uh, but I think when you have to, you you do, uh, and frankly, it's a lot. So for PR, I was yeah speaking to a few friends about my crazy idea, and I always find if you have an idea, this is so true to what, what I do now as well. A lot of people have an idea they don't want to talk about it. If I tell one soul, that's it, my idea is gone, you know, <laughs> and and that's it. I've met a couple of people who who claim to have been the first to have thought about Netflix or Airbnb, and they told a friend, and somebody else did it, you know, six months later. Like it doesn't really work like that, guys. People are busy with their own thing. Well, there's a general hive mind, I think, isn't it? If you yeah. if you've thought of that idea, somebody else somewhere has. So you have to be damn quick with it. You want to be the one to get it to market. You do, and it's a lot to do with the execution. But I think there's something to be said about talking to other people that you like and trust, and and from that conversation, you'll get two or three interesting thoughts and maybe two or three contacts. And what I've really found over the years is have that conversation. They say, you know what? You need to speak to Amy. You've got to speak to Amy. She does PR. So for me, it was that, oh, you got to speak to so-and-so. They do PR and speak to them. They go, ah, you know what? Uh, I'm not the right kind of PR person. You need to speak to so-and-so. They're the experts in this. And you have a chat. Now, I'm I'm a bit introverted. So I'm not like a big out-and-out person. Yeah, this is why I do networking. So it doesn't feel natural. But when you're excited about something, a dream, a passion, an idea, you just do it because you know that's the next step towards trying to launch something, trying to build something. Did you at any point think about the money that you were investing in this? Were there any moments of doubt before it was you know, on the virtual shelves? <laughs> uh, definitely. From my side, it was a question of, yeah, what is the budget I'm willing to spend on this idea? And if I lose it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it's not the end of the world. And back then, I had the luck of you know, being investment banking and yeah, fairly well paid. So you're allocating two, three thousand pounds, which I think was the budget at the time, was okay. It was doable, but maybe with my background, I did I did do a little bit of a business case. I did a little bit of financial model, and to this day, I do that with every business I'm involved with. It's like let's talk about what the numbers look like. Let's do something called the lean canvas. I don't know if you were, do you know what lean canvas is? Yeah, I'm familiar with the lean canvas, but the listeners may not be. So Lean Canvas, effectively, it's, it's a business plan on one page. Yeah, what is the problem? What is the solution? What is the market you're addressing? What are the personas? What's a true pain point? Like, what's your unfair advantage towards? What are your costs? What are your revenues? There's a few more questions, but it's probably about nine questions on one page. And it forces you to think about this like a business. It's an idea, but how do I make it into a business? Like, how can we make this work? So I, I like fundamentals. You go and make more money than you spend. Well, that's a business. It's a good philosophy, I suppose, to, to at least put that level of planning in. 
I imagine you did have moments of doubt along the way as well, because it, it seems like a crazy sort of uh, thing to do. But I mean, <laughs> focusing on the technology side of things, how did you build the website? I mean, I don't know when we're talking here, year, year-wise. 2009-2010. So what, what e-commerce sites were available sort of off the shelf at that point? I'm trying to remember. I think we might have started on something like Mr. Site, which doesn't exist anymore, I don't think, which is a bit like a Wix. That that was a concept they wanted to go towards. An early day Wix, we'll say. Um, I think we ended up getting a developer friend to build us a WordPress site, I believe, a WooCommerce. I think that's where we ended up. Just something really basic. Show the products, talk about that a little bit, but we're not, we're not going for the award-winning site. We're going for something that that works functionally and commercially. I've learned a lot about UX and conversion rate optimization since, which would be useful lessons for back then. But, you know, it, as I said, it was an interesting learning. But this is the first foray for you into technology then. So, I mean, was technology is only part of it, I suppose. We're talking about like the e-commerce bit, really. I mean, it's not really a technology business so if, unless you're going to take um, – the technology that is in tanning fabric <laughs> <laughs> uh, to its uh, logical extreme. But, you know, th- this the fact that you've actually put a virtual shop together, is that what, what gave you the bug to then carry on and turn that into something, something more? Yeah, I think so. Um, there's definitely something about you have an idea, you execute it, seeing the reality come from it, yeah, seeing the physical or digital representation of it. There's some, it's it's a bit of a proud moment, regardless of what it is. As I said, funny example and and great learning, but um, yeah, it it sort of gave me the bug and made me realize, actually, you can create something, you can put it out there and you can find ways of getting customers. People who went, actually, I love this idea. And we have quite a few customers and they thought, this is great. I I, want to buy this. And, And somebody taking out their credit card, putting money into your account is, it's a wonderful feeling. So we've all got our little side projects going on. Have you uh, hired some people to work on your little projects? Oh, absolutely. I'm useless at design. There's a few services out there, though, right, to find people. Where, where do you go? The best place that I've gone, if I was to pick one of these services, is probably Fiverr. It's a bit misleading, though, isn't it? Because they're not going to be a Fiverr. No. <laughs> but, you know, with all these side projects, we don't want it to cost the world. We just want a little bit of help on a little bit of copywriting or a bit of design that we can't do ourselves and shouldn't really attempt to do it because you're going to do a bad job otherwise. If it's not your if it's not your kettle of fish, don't boil the frog. There's a mixed metaphor if ever you heard one. <laughs> <laughs> Get someone on Fiverr, they'll do it much quicker. The prices are very, very reasonable, unless you want to go to the Fiverr preferred members and get your startup up sooner. And you can uh, throw into that tech show at the same time by heading over to thattech.show or taking a look in the description and clicking the affiliate link. And you can try out Fiverr and you can uh, be supporting that tech show whilst you're doing it. Because we get a little bit of a kickback. Give it a go. Venture into the world of outsourcing. Your, your life will change at Fiverr.com. So what came next then? This has given you this, this taste. Yeah. So after that, we're actually having learned about uh, e-commerce, I started working with, with a friend around the idea of creating, I guess, what would be Shopify. 
we didn't quite get to creating Shopify, but that was the that was the aim, the direction. I think we've all got a couple of failed things like that yeah. in the past. <laughs> <laughs> if only we persevered. Yeah, so we, we we worked on that, and it was an ambitious plan. And we didn't have the funding, and we didn't have the knowledge really about how to get funding. That that's a big thing. Yeah, when to get funding. Yeah, how to make it attractive for funding. That's interesting, especially with your investment background. It's funny. It um, I think. Angel investment, once you're aware of it and how it works in this early stage backers, it's not. It's certainly not easy. It takes time, but um, it's something that makes sense. For some reason, back then, I, I didn't feel I was the product was ready for that. I, we were trying to over-engineer it before having a conversation with some potentially supportive investors. Again, if I could go back in time, I would have had some of these conversations. And yes, it might have been expensive on equity, because we, you know, we thought we had an amazing idea, but yeah, it, it's all the things you, you live and learn. And I think I certainly advise people now, if they can, to get themselves to a point, if they can't finance an MVP, so the, the minimum viable product, the first phase of the technology, if they can't do that, to get things looking as great as possible, well thought as possible, pre-sell the concept if need be, prototype it, definitely, then go speak to an investor to have somebody there to support you in building it or building the first version of it, well, we can maybe dig into that a little bit more, but I think that's really important. Yeah, well, you said there about it being potentially expensive in terms of equity, and you know, I, I presume you mean the amount of equity you'd be giving away of your product because actually you've either not got something that's quite at MVP level or maybe you haven't got the customers that are interested in it yet. How, how expensive is that? And you know, is there a trade-off there between the giving away the equity versus actually not managing to build it at all? Hundred percent, yeah. And sometimes uh, uh, entrepreneurs, and I've been guilty of that in the past, think you know they've got the best idea in the world that everybody should love it and be grateful uh, to be able to to fund it for <laughs> maybe not point five percent of that. But it, it doesn't really work like that. There's a lot of risk involved, hence why there should be some decent potential returns involved and. Any angel investor will have hopefully a portfolio approach to things. So yeah, out of the ten they back, maybe a couple will do quite well. Yeah, that, that's that's probably the hit rate. Yes, I think in terms of the equity side, it is just that if you try and raise investment too early in the game, what what are people betting on? They're betting on you as an individual. They're betting on your idea that it makes sense that they, they understand. Maybe they understand the the area and they think this is a great idea for this niche. But a lot of the time, if it's too early, pre-product, pre-traction, it is betting on you as an individual to be able to execute the vision that you've put forward. If you can get a little bit of a product built, some traction, it could even be, uh, I've done this in the past, you know, put up a landing page, drive traffic, demonstrate that you can build a list of interested potential clients. Yeah, They've given you the email address about this product that you've described. Everything you can do to build a picture that this is a potentially viable business can increase the perceived value of that idea of that potential startup. So when you come to speak to an investor, you say, look, I've got this potential clients. I've got this vision. I've got this strategy. I've got this, maybe this prototype so you can see what it looks like. And it's going to work like this. Now, what I need is the money to transform that into a build that's a much more powerful conversation than I have an idea. It looks. I've got a shiny PowerPoint deck, or not even that. I've got a bit of a crappy looking PowerPoint deck. Excuse my French. Um, I don't think that was actually French, even from a from a French person. Yeah, 
<laughs> does that make sense, Chris? Oh, it, it, that- it does, yeah. I think it's interesting, though, because, I mean, it, that's a hard thing. And I, I, you must see this from the, the entrepreneurs that you work with and speak and, and speak to all of the time that, you know, I think I'm certainly guilty of this as well as, a, as someone who takes a sort of contractor's wage and has startup ideas that I'm working on. You know, a contractor's wage is a, a fair amount to overcome if you were moving into a permanent role, right? And you would be doing that to make that shift into your own company. So how do you then entice an investor um, if you say, I I need like a, you know, X large salary, for example. Oh, and that bit's just for me. And then I'm going to hire some other people. Like, that can't <laughs> be attractive to, to investors at all. No, no, it's, um, it's a funny one because I think you can get trapped as a well-paid contractor you can get trapped in the lifestyle, the revenue, you know, some of the some of the, the rates you're seeing from people, four, eight, a thousand pounds a day, you know, whatever it is. That's a lot of money. To give up to have some hope value around creating a business I can run without you. As a contractor, you're selling your time. Uh, when you set up your business, in theory, you can get to a point where it's running without you. To me, that's a true business. Otherwise, you you have a, a bit of a glorified job, which you if you set up a new business, you, you will have a, a job for a while until you can get the right team, right structure, so it's up and running without. But no investor, I think in their right mind, would say, hey, let's replace your contractor salary with a very attractive um, you know, startup salary. You've got to be willing to have some personal runway, so personal time that you can be paid either nothing or minimal amount to see it through and make it succeed. That's difficult for some people. So that's when you end up working in in evenings, et cetera, to make it work. And I mean, nobody said it, it'd be easy to set up uh, a, a new business or, or create a new new project. It definitely takes dedication and frankly, time as well. I think people underestimate that, but it's, it's not a, a month. It's usually a lot longer than that. Well, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's a big commitment and I'm sure you must see people burn out. Yes. Yes. So you've seen a, a couple of uh, entrepreneurs that, we're trying to do too many things, uh, and that's the thing. You've got to be – I think they're overestimating what they can achieve in, in, in a week and underestimating what they can achieve in six months, if that makes sense. You're trying to do too much now, uh, and it's like, no, just take your time. There's no immediate rush, uh, you know, step-by-step, step, incremental steps towards towards your goal is a bit better. <laughs> So, I mean, let's let's talk about how you've got from from this this point of you know um, the Shopify one. I presume you know it didn't work out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was still so I was still working uh, then. I was still working, and actually, my my last job then was more trading, so high yield bonds, which is still to do with part of FT deals, and that that was interesting up up to a point, but it, it wasn't a good culture where I was. It wasn't an enjoyable place to work, and then we had this this child, and I thought. To be honest, yeah, screw this. Um, it's probably the best way to phrase it. I'm not sure what I want to do, but I know it's not this. So uh, we, we used to live in Richmond in London, and we thought, you know what, we'll move out. So we moved in with, with my in-laws, yeah, cut all the costs we could, because I wanted that personal runway to try and turn things around, to try and find something I wanted to do. I knew it was to do with technology. I didn't exactly know what, if I'm honest, Chris. I just knew I wanted to do something. So I quit my job uh, after a notice period. I yeah, moved to the countryside, which is actually where we live now. Uh, so about an hour south of London. 
in a tiny little village, which has got a great community of young families who've done the same thing, moved down to London, come down here. Um, and I fell into uh, building apps for uh, diets. So the, the patio diet was the first one I did because I was just interested in the topic. And I realized it wasn't a good paleo diet app at the time. Has this come from Tim Ferriss again? I think he did a paleo thing, didn't he? He, he possibly, yeah, I think I think he did. Uh, I, I definitely like and respect Tim Ferriss and thought this guy's really interesting. I like his experimenting with sort of mentality. So I experimented with the paleo diet and thought, this is good. I feel better. I feel more energy, all, all this sort of stuff. And then got into barefoot running, all this stuff. Yes, lots of experimenting with things. But as I was doing that, I realized there wasn't particularly an app for that. Again, not saying that this was a revolutionary idea, but it was creating a little business and I ended up having six diet apps. So did you do, you, you'd started with paleo. Did you then pick up other ones? Yeah, exactly. So what I realized, and again, it's basics of business stuff, I guess, but if I created the template in terms of technology for uh, what a good diet app looks like, I could reskin it. So I could take that and put other content through it. So the content was was the key and the tech was the delivery mechanism. And then I had the app store as the channel to sell, if you will, so to sell the apps. So yeah, it was the Mediterranean diet, the 5-2 diet, and a couple of others. I can't remember which ones now. <laughs> but it was creating a little portfolio. And then it was a question of trying to trying to market it. But it was generating me some money on a monthly basis. And that was that was nice. So, so did you do that all by yourself? Did you need a small team of people? I mean, how did that? How did you put that together? Uh, it's a good question. So I'm I'm not a developer. I've never learned to code. And in some ways I wish I had. But instead, what I learned to do was um, to think about the product, think about the UX side, so the user experience, and to hire and manage developers. I, I guess that's what I do a lot of in terms of commercialization. So I found a team in India, uh, back then, and I had a, a lot of learnings about yeah, how to work with with foreign teams or yeah, people far away uh, through. I think it was called Elance at the time, something called Upwork now, which is a big marketplace of of freelancers. Great resource, actually. We've used it quite successfully. Yeah, um, you've got to spend a bit of time thinking about how you recruit, and I can bore to tears about <laughs> recruiting on there, having done it for so many years. Um, but it's a great resource because if you don't know how to do something, you could learn how to do it or you could find somebody who's an expert at that and pay them whatever it is. Some jobs are, are five, ten dollar jobs, frankly, that would take you hours to do. Just get somebody else to do that so you can focus on where you can add most value. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big advocate for that. You know, find experts to work with you. And again, you must have had to put a business case together to say this is how much money I can afford to aside for this this is how much i'll get on return and investment yeah absolutely um yeah because uh, as i said i left a finance job and i had a personal runway so that was my personal investment runway uh yeah on which i had to live as i said okay can i live for 12 months what was the was the aim and i could invest a bit of money but you know it, it was thousands in making it work i Frankly, I didn't have enough runway to do this properly, so it was it was a, a real challenge, quite stressful. So, saying that you've got like um, you know the first app that you're putting together, which obviously is the first of like five or six, as you said, how do you work out how much you can spend on that? How do you work out how valuable an app can be? Good question. If I recall, there was a couple of tools, one of which being Sensor Tower, or another one being App Annie. This may have changed. This was a while ago, but they effectively helped you to understand 
based on the ranking uh, and the number of downloads, the estimated revenue that this app can make. Now, back then, there was probably more money capacity, so more capacity to make money from, from selling apps. I think now the model's changed a little bit, but back then I could have an inkling an inkling on that. So again, it was trying to trying to budget and trying to keep it tight and keep it close because um, I've seen lots of people sort of go, I only have one idea. I want to spend all my money on it. Yeah, personally, I prefer taking that slight portfolio approach. So even with the diet app, it's okay. It's five different ones. You know, it's not just one. It's that kind of mentality. And did you see the return that you'd expected from these apps? Not quite. Nearly. It did okay. It, it was enough to, to live on frugally, but enough to live on <laughs> and, and maybe prove the concept and prove to my wife I wasn't crazy. That was That's probably a, a big thing. But for me, there came a point where I thought, you know what, I, I can offload those for, for a small amount of money, but that's fine because I had an opportunity to actually um, work for a very big agency that specialized in creating technology. Because I, I realized a gap I had is I was completely blagging it, Chris. I, yeah, I'd never <laughs> done tech. I was excited about tech and that's maybe half the battle. So I ended up uh, taking a job with a big agency uh, that built technology for, for large businesses. Moving into a, into an organization then that is going to stop you from blagging <laughs> and it's going to give you all of the background that you need, what did you learn from that? Because clearly there's a lot of entrepreneurial skill with a lot of business backing knowledge from your investment days. What, what, was, what were the gaps that were filled by working for, for the agency? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, for me, it was um, how to create technology really properly. Uh, what the process is, what the right roles, who are the right people to be involved, a lot of time on, on UX. Because I think, yes, you can create an app, a website, whatever it is. But if it doesn't convert in the way you expect it to, it's complete waste. So if you haven't optimized the user journeys in such a way and every single screen that you get people to go from A to B to C in, in the right way as they want to, then you've wasted money. You know, if you spend five pounds for a click on an AdWords to get somebody to your website, which is not optimized, you've just, you might as well burn that money. So there's a lot of learning around that, as well as um, just how to run an agency. Because it, I kind of realized as well that people kept asking me, can I help them with their idea? And though I don't really like the word agency, I prefer as a tech partner, but I felt it'd be interesting for me to know how other people do it. So if I wanted to do that, on my own, I help other people build their businesses through technology. It'd be good to know how the big guys do it. So that, that was the main gaps, I guess, I, I was keen to fill, which I spent about one year learning before going off on my own again. <laughs> so I'm conscious that there's a hell of a lot of other ventures and things <laughs> that come after this. So is there a is there a whistle stop tour that brings us brings us a little bit more up to date with you know what you've taken from that that learning because it sounds like you you're pretty complete at this point in the sense of an entrepreneur who wants to work in tech minus the coding but obviously it's worth pointing out that you don't need to be a coder to have a career in tech in fact the coding part is a very small portion i suppose these days as well you know especially if you you're doing all of this this business stuff so coming out of that that agency experience Bring us up to present day. Yeah, so really past few years, and what I got to now is I, I love working with founders. Yes, I work some bigger businesses as well, but I love founders because 
somebody's got an idea and doesn't know how to execute on it, how to move it forward from idea to launching it. I've been there and I've been on that journey and I know the process. And it is very much a process. How do you go from A to B? What are the different steps to de-risk you know, the steps so you're not spending all your money on that? Validate your concept and then build it. So what I've ended up with as a quick whistle stop tour is you know, my main business does that, working with founders to build technology or SMEs or you know, businesses with ideas. But I also, I guess, almost accelerate or incubate with a number of founders their businesses so I can be more involved on the commercialization side. I have a startup in, this is super unsexy, but data cleaning, which is basically uh, understanding who does what, when, where, how in terms of uh, in terms of cleaning, which is important with COVID. And yeah, currently working on a couple of concepts, one around autism and one around analytics. Because now I've realized uh, the process and I've learned a lot along the, along the way, I'm just keen to build more things for myself because it, it's addictive. I think, Chris, is probably the best way to phrase it. Very addictive. How, how do you manage all of this? Because it sounds like you're juggling a few things. You're, you're building a lot of stuff yourself. You're advising people. You're helping businesses to grow and to, to, to understand their markets and to scale, I guess. So how do you juggle all of that? Yeah. <laughs> Not always easy, but I guess I've got I've got the business to a point where I've got lovely people in the team. I've got the right people in the right role. So a lot of the things that need to be done are done so I can focus on the things I love. Because I think there's things in a business that drain you and the things that give you energy. And for me, it's it's ideas, it's, it's product, it's design, commercialization. All these sides are exciting. So I don't mind juggling lots of those because it's all fun and exciting. And then I've got a team that delivers after that. So that's probably how I manage multiple ventures. So, so how, how big are we talking in terms of this team at the moment? It's not huge. It's 15 people. Okay. That's a reasonable amount for a small yeah. business <laughs> that's that's dealing with uh, other businesses, certainly. I mean, so how do you get to the point where you're happy handing stuff off to those people? Because, I mean, this is, a, this is another challenge of building businesses. And obviously, I think we've got a little bit of synergy in the, I've done a lot of management consulting type work, you know, helping someone to build a business. And obviously I've run my own businesses as well. So helping someone to build a business versus actually running your own business and delegating stuff feel like two very different things. So um, how did you get to sort of 15, feeling comfortable to hand certain things off to grow the business so that you can focus? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I think there's definitely an element of uh, needing to let go, not needing, yeah, realizing that you shouldn't control everything, but also making sure that you hire great people. So uh, I guess you can call them A players. Yeah. Because I'm not a technologist, it's actually been a real benefit for me because I can't code. So I can't go and do all the coding and sort that out. I've got to trust people I've hired. So that means I need to make sure I hire good people who can deliver on that because if there's a problem, I, I can't fix it. So that's actually been quite quite a blessing. But hiring good people has been good. Putting in place processes has been good. So I go back to this traction book, EOS. That's useful to sort of put in place processes in your mind about how things work and then making sure you step away. Sometimes I try to step away too much from the business and I can see it's not working quite well. And then I sort of come back in and, and sort of try to find better ways of doing it. Yeah, it's an ongoing journey, I guess, uh, Chris, on, on on that. But good people certainly helps, especially, I mean, we're a fully remote business and have been since, uh, well, since I set it up, really. 
because you know why should you hire the best people within 10 miles of an office where you can just hire the best people for full stop how well how did you come to that conclusion because i mean a lot of people have been forced into that over the last couple of years but how did you come to that yeah, it's been fascinating to see people realize they can work from home uh, and discover <laughs> what the local area looks like you know monday to friday uh, I think for me, because I had to, I ended up recruiting people on, on you know, in India, say initially, and then Ukraine, and then Eastern Europe, and all, all over the place. I realized actually I can do all stuff remotely. That's nice. And then I, I, I just realized that, especially through Upwork, you can find the right people in that way, and you can make it work. So it's a lot about learning how to communicate and how to operate remotely, and build that team culture. So I don't know. It just felt natural. Whereas the idea of hiring an office, kitting it out, finding people locally just didn't. Uh, maybe it's a personality thing. It it felt better for me to do that. And I'll go meet up with people a couple of times a year and that tends to be enough. What what's next for you then? What's what's on the what's on the agenda? What's the plan? I'm really focusing on bigger businesses, uh, I guess, with people, especially with an angle around ESG. So some things which are environmentally or socially impactful. So we've got one around mental health at the moment, for example, that we help them build. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I want to I want to help more with that. So tech for good would be good. So that's on the, if I can call it client side, so the people we partner with. But on the personal front, I'm very keen to, to, to set up a couple of our own ventures, staff them correctly, and uh, maybe get some investment in to help scale them correctly. The first one is around autism, because there's a big opportunity to do, again, tech for good in an area that's uh, underrepresented and where the, there's not much technology that, that stacks up, really. And so how do people get in touch with you if they want to, if they if they found this useful, as I have, actually? How do they get in touch with you if they want your help, if they want any more information? Of course. I'm always happy to talk to people about technology and ideas. Uh, yeah, it, it's great fun, or you know, people's journeys and questions they may have. Uh, probably the best way is on our website, um, appyventures.com. That's A-P-P-Y ventures.com. Or you can email me on patrice at appyventures.com. All right, very good. Well, I mean, I think uh, there's there's been an awful lot we've covered today. So I want to just thank you for uh, for joining us. And I think it's fascinating that career journey that you've had just gives a complete different side to running technology businesses and growing them and working with other people that, you know, I, it's not, it's not a normal, it's not a normal side to it. It's, it's that business mindset that's slightly different from what we often talk about. So again, thanks for your time. Thank you, Chris. It's been a pleasure. Brilliant stuff. Thanks for sticking around to the end. Remember to follow or subscribe if you haven't already. And why not leave a review for this episode over on Podchaser if you like it. If you don't, don't leave a review. Um, but you've got it this far. So, you know, I'm assuming you did like it. Either that or you can't get to your phone. Anyway, thanks <laughs> for sticking around. Um, that'll help people get a glimpse of whether this episode is right for them. That's if they, if you leave a review. But if you don't, but don't bother. It's, it's fine. If you don't like it, just just keep listening. Next week, we have Reese Howell, who talks to us all about electric bikes and the changing attitudes towards the e-bike and e-transport revolution. So we'll see you then.